Hi, everyone. Good evening. My name is Dr. Brad Reedy. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. It's September 30th, 2019. The reason that we do these particular broadcasts is to open it up for for siblings, for extended family, or for friends of participants at Evoke. So you can ask any question throughout the broadcast that you would like to ask of me on any subject. And I'll get to those once I've finished my pre-submitted questions. We have, I think, seven pre-submitted questions that we'll get to. If you are not a parent... If you are a sibling or an extended family member or a friend of an Evoke participant, please let me know your relationship and let me know your age if you're under the age of 18, for example, because sometimes I have young siblings ask questions and I want to make sure that my, my language uh, matches the, the, the age of the, of the person asking the question. So with that, let me get into the pre-submitted questions. What is the difference between setting a boundary and trying to control your child? Um, that's a subtle, nuanced question. I'm glad that it's asked because it's something I get asked almost every week. The first thing I like to think about with boundaries is boundaries are healthy self-care. Boundaries are to make sure that I am okay, feeling okay, that that I'm feeling a a sense of wellness in in my circle, in in my my context. It's, It's for me. And in the role of a parent, I, I talk about this with our staff all the time, in the role of a parent or a staff, it's what do I need in this role to feel okay? And I use a simple trite example to say to a young child, I'm not comfortable with you playing with a knife, with you using a sharp knife, or I'm comfortable with this curfew or that curfew. I'm not comfortable to you going to this concert without adult supervision. So you start to talk about, and I think it's counterintuitive. I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people, are uncomfortable for setting boundaries from a place of healthy self-care. It's one of the, the, the biggest and most common trappings in our lives. We, we want to set boundaries because we, and we want to justify it by how it's going to benefit the other person. This is what you need to learn. I'm doing this for your good. I think fundamentally, we have some shame about healthy self-care, and we were not really taught to set boundaries in a way that that was for us. We weren't modeled. That wasn't modeled for us growing up. We were told that it was for our own good. Now, I want to be clear. Healthy, assertive, clear, authentic boundaries do make an impact on the people around us. They, They do teach lessons to our children. And while we, we kind of have to divorce ourselves from that idea while doing them, we know that they do that. A child has to learn delay of gratification, frustration tolerance, right? They have to, they learn the, the, the limits that, that they're exposed to with our boundary. But the big shift, and I, I say this all the time, the big shift is that you don't get to be right anymore in this way of thinking. But as I also often say, is you get to be a person. You get to be a self. And being a person, being a self is so much better than being right. So it's a simple 
idea, a simple tool, a simple scale, skill that I teach parents and not just parents, but spouses, other relationships. If you start talking to people about here's what I'm comfortable with in this situation or here's what I need in this situation. This is my limits, my boundaries, my 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 rules for, for this context, for this situation. You do take it out of the power struggle. And when somebody accuses you of being wrong or being crazy or neurotic or old-fashioned, your response, and I know I say this humorously, tongue-in-cheek, but your response is, okay, I, I may be one in all of those things, but I'm me. We joke in my family about the, the mushroom example. I don't like mushrooms. And we joke about this because I tell this story all the time, or I share this idea all the time, that it's rare, even as a 51-year-old man, it's rare that I share with people that I don't like mushrooms. I also don't like bananas. And it's almost perfectly consistent that when I share that with new people, they try to talk me out of it, especially bananas. But in our family, if somebody's trying to change somebody's idea or boundary, somebody else will just say, I don't like mushrooms. And it's a reminder that everybody gets to have their boundary. Everybody gets to have their limit and, and conse- consequences associated with that. So um, it does have an impact. It does have an influence. I talk about this in my first book on the, the idea of, of control versus influence. It absolutely has an impact, but we do it for healthy self-care. And, and it's liberating. And you'll find over time in all of your relationships that the profound shift that you and others make as you shift the idea from boundaries to teach the other person the lesson to boundaries to take care of yourself. Question number two, and just a reminder, you can send in questions anytime. Question number two, why do you suggest that parents not share their feelings with their children? This actually I get asked more and more recently. Um, it's not that I say that, you, that we ought not to. I, 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 I share this idea, and no matter how careful I am to, to use words very intentionally. People always hear it as an absolute. I say, I'm almost at the point, almost at the point where I discourage parents from sharing their feelings with their children. Now, I'm not there yet, but, but the, the, the impact that I'm trying to make by saying that is it's because almost universally parents share feelings with their children to try to modify their behavior, right? If I'm happy, or proud, then you're doing well. And if I'm sad, anxious, scared, frustrated, angry, agitated, whatever, then you're not doing well. So we begin to condition our children to to wire them to believe that what somebody else thinks and feels about them is about them. And then we ask ourselves as they grow through their developmental phases, especially in adolescence, Why are they so susceptible to peer pressure? And the answer is because we started it. So have your feelings. I want to be as clear as I can about that. Have your feelings. They're they're valid. You, You deserve to have them. But take care of them in other places so that when you come back to the child, you're informed by your feelings, but you're not reacting to them. And the interaction with your child when you're making a a parenting decision 
is not raw and, and from an unresolved place in you, but from a clear place, from a rational place, from that, that part of your brain that we all want all of our children to operate from, right? The frontal, the prefrontal cortex, the part that makes rational decisions with, with, with forethought and awareness. So you take care of your feelings over there, wherever over there is, a spouse, a friend, a mentor, a sponsor, a therapist, a support group. You take care of your feelings over there. So when you come back here and interact with the child, that interaction serves to support the child instead of taking care of you. A very, very common experience of children of all ages is the experience that they had to take care of parents, that they had to show up in a certain way. And some of the ways that they were asked to show up weren't toxic, negative ways. Let's use depression or anxiety as an example. I have to show up non-depressed, non-anxious because my parents get worried, right? They, They get anxious when I'm anxious. They get anxious and worried when I'm depressed. And children don't know how to hold that. They're not equipped developmentally to hold the parents' feelings. So you take care of your feelings. And again, I say I'm almost ready to to, to discourage that. But what I really mean is that we become much more intentional. That we have our emotional reaction to especially big things. That we work on it, digest it, work through it. And then we come back to the person that we were triggered by and we start to talk in in a rational level-headed way. That's kind of the cycle. Question number three, if you don't believe in blame or shame, why spend so much time talking about parent work? I think it's so hard for us as humans, not just parents, to separate out the the idea, the feelings of blame and shame with accountability and and awareness. Right? I've told the story many times as of late where my mother said to me and my, my older brother not too long ago, I think I should start, maybe I'm supposed to feel guilty for some of the ways that I raised you. And I said to her, I would love for you to be aware of some of the mistakes you made, but you don't have to feel guilt. You can if you want to. I can't talk you out of it, but I don't think it'll be helpful. I think your guilt will probably get in the way of your being aware of the mistakes that you made. So we, we just don't, we don't, none of us virtually, none of us, come from contexts where mistakes, even mistakes that hurt other people, weren't responded to without a lot of anger and shame, right? A lot of intensity. So we, we work on ourselves as parents. I talk about parents because that's, that's really all we can control. You know, another part of this question that I think is implied is peers have their impact, right? The, 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 the media, culture, has its impact. The, the school environment has its impact. Siblings have their impact. All of those things have their impact on, on our children. So all of them are, are areas that are worthy of attention and focus. But, but, we don't have control over those things. Not ultimately, we don't. The only thing we have control over is us. And so to spend Uh, an inordinate amount of time focusing on things that we can't control doesn't make a lot of sense. I talk about this with parents all the time. Take 100% responsibility for 1% of the problem. That's the invitation. And again, 
in my own work personally, my own therapeutic work, I, I, I've grown to a place where I, I love. It's not a burden. I, I don't feel weighed down by guilt the more I do the work. I just realize. And I can be so much more generous with my children about the mistakes that I've made. I may have told some of you, you may have heard me talk about my wife when she wrote a hopes and intentions letter to my son. She said, and I thought it was incredibly wise and articulate, she said, it's not lost on me that we sent you to a program to work on things, to get rid of things that you put in place in part to protect you from us. We sent you somewhere to get rid of things that you put in place to protect you from us. Now, to be clear, that did not change my wife's boundary 1%, not even in the slightest. What it did do is offer an empathic, I think generous and courageous idea to my child, which is you have a right to be hurt and angry with us. And I'm going to be patient as you learn to let down those walls because those walls were put up for very good reason. Me, my mistakes, my humanity. So question number four, why do so many students go on to aftercare instead of home after a vote? Technically, aftercare is anything after the, the, the treatment that is being discussed. So aftercare could be home. It's a more conservative approach. You know, it's, 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 it's a transition. What people, I think, don't realize that don't know what wilderness therapy is, is it's probably the most contained, structured environment, the safest environment with the most support that anyone will ever be in, right? It's a primary level of care. And so whatever you go to next, the therapist thinks about it in terms of what's the next step. And maintenance can be very important. Now, I want to say this because I think this is also part of the the question, the implication. It was not my or our theoretical perspective or underpinning as we started this to think that most kids would go on to therapeutic schools, sober living, transitional living, and so forth. It was not. My inclination and most of us thought, like a lot of parents, that that this could be a really impactful, relatively short-term intervention and they, they could come home with some therapy. It was only through experience that we learned that when when many of the clients or students got to this point, that going home was not a great next step. I I will say that more and more consultants and professionals at home are are creating or maintaining or, or working with intensive outpatient programs, right? Wraparound services. So I think more than, than, than 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, there's, there's a lot more services at home that can help support the family. But it's hard work. It's, it's, it's harder work. I want to be clear. The, the less structure and support of a program, the more work it is for you. So part of that is part of that discussion. So it's just our experience. Somewhere in the, the two-third to 70%, 75% range of clients go on to, to some out-of-home situation, not back to, to where they were. And that's just been our experience. The next question, how do you deal with shame in therapy? This actually question, I kind of cheated here because this question was asked 
to a colleague of mine at a conference I just went to, um, Dr. Harriet Lerner, who's one of my favorite people in, in, in this field and one of the, my favorite authors. She wrote The Dance of Anger, which I think is it's my favorite book on boundaries that I've ever read. And after she gave a talk on shame, the facilitator or, or the MC asked her this question, how do you deal with shame in therapy? And her response was, after a pause, a thoughtful pause, she said, I think you're just asking me how I do therapy. And what she meant by that is, that's what we're treating. We're, we're, we're trying to find a way to work with the shame, to work with what therapists call resistance. And I'm not talking about what most people think of, of as resistance, which is just rebellion, right? Opposition. It's not just that. It's the shame that, that prevents us from being able to see what's going on for us and to, to look at it and, and to eventually heal it. And that's what separates therapy from a layperson, from uh, psychoeducation or self-help books. You've got to find a way to kind of honor the shame and, and work around it. So the question of how you deal with shame in therapy is really the same question of how do you do therapy? Because that's what we're treating. We're treating shame and resistance. So as you work with your evoke therapist, know that. That, that the information, the, the lectures, and all of you know this. You know that if lectures worked, your child wouldn't be here. You know that if the, simply dispensing information to your child worked, that evoke wouldn't exist. Therapists wouldn't exist. But there's something that gets in the way of those ideas taking root. And what's more, a more interesting question to the therapist is, why don't you want to change? Why doesn't it take root? What are the, the, the good reasons for maintaining the defense system, the, the symptoms, the diagnosis that you have? That's a more interesting question than what's the right thing to do. That's an easy one to answer that most functional adults can answer. And for sure, brand new therapists can answer. But the real question, the real art of it is how do you work with, around, how do we honor the shame and the resistance? How do we honor the defenses instead of attacking them and provoking them? That's the question. And that's what therapy is. Next question. If my child doesn't have issues with substance abuses, substances, excuse me, why do you suggest Al-Anon? A couple of things. Al-Anon specific is... is can be focused on having a family member, maybe more, most particularly a, a, a spouse with alcoholism. So that's why we talk about Families Anonymous and, and Codependents Anonymous and even adult children, adult children of Alcoholics Anonymous. It, it's, it just substitute the, the word for the word alcohol, substitute the word mental health issue, mental illness, depression anxiety, eating disorder, even autism spectrum disorder. What is the, the, the non-rational, self-sabotaging behavior of my loved one? And how do I relate to somebody that I can't control? So it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. I'm currently writing a book uh, with a father and a son about a very religious family where the son came out as gay and they had to work through it and it took them several years to do it. Now they're both, the son is well into his 30s and I'm, I'm writing a book with them. 
And one of the things that they said to me recently was, it applies to people that, that are dealing with a child that wants to quit violin. Even though one is more, uh, a much more charged issue, and maybe people see it as a, a much more core issue related to somebody's values and ideas about what it means to be a healthy person. It's the same kind of question. So going to Al-Anon or CODA or Families Anonymous, you really have to use your metaphorical brain. You have to hear the message beneath the surface. What it, what's being talked about? When I watch this wife talk about her alcoholic husband, of course, she has different decisions to make than I do with my 16-year-old son who's suffering from anxiety and suicidality. Of, of course, there are different decisions to make. But what are the deeper truths that are being talked about and taught? And if you can hear those, you really do start to heal, hear the message that, that we have for you. If it's just that surface, then circumstances, situations, facts can change so often that you'll always be left wondering what to do. But when you start to understand the sensibility, in other words, what it means to, to be a person, to be a human, and to love somebody else who's human. And when you start to understand that, and I know that sounds almost too simple of, of, of an idea, but when you start to understand that, then everything makes sense. Then you can relate to everybody. I always say this in, in, the, in our program, that the more advanced students and clients will say to each other, yeah, you know, I didn't use drugs or I didn't yell at my parents like you did or, or whatever it is, but my drug was lying or my drug, drug was pleasing. My drug was perfectionism. And, and that's when you know somebody's getting it when they can see the similarities. Mental health, one of the signs of mental health is to be able to see the similarity between yourself and others, not the differences. That's easy to do. Next question, what, what value does an educational consultant offer that Evoke or other programs can't provide? I'm a fan of educational consultants. I believe that they offer a, a significant value to the process. I, I've shared this before. I hired one myself after I had been doing this for 10 years, and I, I was offered a professional courtesy discount. But I said, I wanna pay full price because I don't want it to be a favor. I, I wanna get the same service that a full playing, playing client got. They offer you several things. They offer you a, a quality assurance advocate. They offer you, of course, placement expertise, of course. They offer you an objective third party to, to potentially give you feedback, to, to create bridges between you and, and the, the program that you might be struggling with if, it's not, if, you, if something is, is lost in communication. They offer you crisis management, somebody to call when you're at, at various transitions or, or difficult moments. They offer you all of that. And their expertise in programs and professionals is that that's what they do. They spend their career trying to know people and programs to, to be able to provide you services that fit that. But I, I think that, that sometimes we think of it too, too narrow. We think of it as just as placement experts. And while that is a, a core value that they add, they offer so much more in terms of the process. All right, I'm happy to ask any, answer any questions. I have one here. 
that just came in that says, a contextual question. This meeting started with your going over questions submitted from the community. Did we miss something? An assignment or instructions that we were supposed to complete before the broadcast. It feels like we are starting in the middle of something. Um, The invitation should should say, and I'll check it out, it should say that it's open question and answer and that you can submit questions at any time. But no, I just, I I front loaded them with questions that I'm getting from clients and various sources to kind of give you some time to think about the question that you might have, but you don't have to prepare ahead of time. They're just the questions that either people have sent in or or that, that... People have been asking me at parent meetings, for example, or like the the conference I went to, the one that I shared there. So it's just a buffer to give you some time. I'll make sure that the invites for the question and answer uh, webinars that they when they go out that they say that we, we're open to questions. We I don't know if that people read those because they have said them in the past. I don't know if this one did. I don't know if people read the, the the fine print there. And we rarely get we don't get a lot of return on that. And that's why we take what we have and we we put it in there and I plug it in from some various sources. So thank you for asking that, but you're not behind. You're where everybody else is most likely. Any other questions about any topic that you'd like me to address? I have some, some our announcement slides I can go over and then we have another time for, for question and answer. So I'll go through those. If you have the opportunity for, to attend one of our parent support groups, please do. We will be in London on October 6th. That's this, this Sunday, 4 to 6 p.m. Um, I'll be in Chicago on October 27th, 4.30 to 6, 30 p.m. And back in New York on November 4th, 7 to 9 p.m. We will be in Southern California somewhere around the end of November or beginning of December. We're just planning that detail. With all of these for more information or to RSVP, RSVP please contact Melanie at evoketherapy.com. If you want to do a deeper dive, into your own work. If you feel like there's something there, you want a therapy springboard, you want to know what your work is, Finding You is the place to go. I think we have two spots left in our October Finding You. So the, the next one is October 23rd through to 27, and then we have one in November November 13th through 17th. So go to our, our website at intensives, on our intensives part of our website, or email intensives at evoketherapy.com. We have pursuits trips for families and young adults all over the country. So it's kind of therapy light led by our staff. They're all custom fitted for whatever activities you want to, you want to do and whatever level of therapy you want. We ask all current parents to attend six 12-step support groups. So I give you a, a list of options to choose from. Al-Anon, like I mentioned earlier, CODA, go to CODA.org. Family, families Anonymous at FamiliesAnonymous.org. AdultChildren.org for adult children of alcoholics. Again, it doesn't mean that your parents were necessarily alcoholics, but maybe you felt like it was very unsafe or toxic growing up. Just go to see, listen to what the other, other people are saying about their childhoods. Alateen is for teenagers of, of maybe siblings or if they have parents that are alcoholics. RefugeRecovery.org is a place to go to for a support group that's free, that's not so much focused on a higher power. It's more Buddhist inspired. NAMI.org, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, is, has chapters in, in communities all over the country, free or affordable services and classes. All of these podcasts are available on an iPhone or an iOS device using the podcast app, on an Android device using the SoundCloud app, or you can go to soundcloud.com. 
On Twitter and Instagram, you can find Evoke Therapy programs using the handle at Evoke Therapy. You can also find the, the Summit Lodge, our intensive program, using at Evoke Summit Lodge on Instagram. On Facebook, you can find Evoke by searching Evoke Therapy Programs or the Alumni Foundation that helps people that can't afford therapy by searching Evoke Family Foundation. Also, we have information on if you have a family or you are a family from the Northwest that needs financial assistance, please contact uh, Melanie at evoketherapy.com for questions about that because we're connected to an organization that has some funds available for this year still families in the Northwest who need funds for, for treatment. Uh, the Evoke Therapy blog, of course, has updated contact each week, content each week. My book, The Journey of the Rogue Parent, is available on, on Amazon or Audible. If you go to the Parent Alumni Foundation book page, you can any book that you buy through that, through the Amazon Smiles program, a percentage of the proceeds goes to the foundation to help people that can't afford therapy. All right, any other live questions? Someone asks, what if it is determined that my child needs aftercare and he does not want to go? What are my options? I assume your child is a young adult. That's what I assume from your question because obviously teenagers don't have to give permission, even at a vote. Um, it's a complex, it's a great question. It's a complex answer because you might use leverage. You might simply say, here's what I can and can't support financially, logistically. You might, the therapist will help you work through that. It's not, and, and this is for all of you. The first response by, by the child at any age of no, I won't do it, be patient through that. Most every child, not all of them, of course, but most children, the, 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 the great majority of them will initially resist any more treatment, any treatment whatsoever. So work with your therapist. There's a process that your evoke therapist can walk you through where you can get to that point. You know, we want them to start to taste the, the sweetness of, of the work, of their own work, of the healing. Uh, positive peer culture out there helps. Some simple leverage can help. And, and of course, dialoguing with the parents, dialoguing with the therapist. So it, it's don't, don't worry if the first response is no. That's more common than not. And then work with your evoke therapist to kind of get to that point. Next question. As we move forward and our son and our son also at evoke, we understand the next steps are unknown and to be determined as we go. We have read so far therapeutic boarding school or residential treatment program. How do we know which one? Do you provide recommendations at the end of the program? Absolutely. The, the, the Evoke therapist provides a, a level of care. If you have an educational consultant, they'll provide specific names. They can make um, a specific referral to these programs. If you don't have one, we encourage you to consider it. If you still don't want to get one, then your Evoke therapist can do their best to at least provide you with some options that you can research yourself. They're not as knowledgeable as a consultant, but they can provide you with, with some names where you can reach the search them themselves. But as I said earlier, I'm a fan of the educational consultant role if that's a possibility for you. They cost a little bit of money, but the value that they add is, is well worth it. And in the long run, they might even save you money as they help you work through the situation, the crisis, and manage the case. But absolutely, the answer is yes. 
Any other questions? Thank you for joining us. I hope these midweek connections are, are helpful to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for attending. I thank you for it on behalf of your children. Just the idea that parents will, will listen to these podcasts or watch these webinars gives the children such hope and relief. My next broadcast will be this Wednesday, two days from now, October 2nd at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. I'll be talking about the, the, the idea and the book Brain Spotting, the revolutionary new therapy for rapid and effective change by Dr. David Grant. So I'll be reviewing that book and talk to you about brain spotting and how it's used to deal with, to, to process, to heal trauma. So I look forward to that. You can always send any questions in to intensives, excuse me, to webinar at evoketherapy.com um, or to brad at evoketherapy.com and I'm happy to bring those up on the next broadcast or on the next question and answer. I hope this is helpful. Thanks for joining me this, e this evening, folks. Have a great evening. Good night. Bye-bye.